Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 134. It's September 4th, 2014. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, it seems like there's no relief for the correction that we're currently going through. Since we're headed into a long Labor Day weekend, it wasn't surprising that the markets closed down today. However, they did close down maybe a little more than people would have anticipated. Some of that's being blamed on the jobs number not being as as, uh, good as they would have expected. However, you have to remember, in the past, the personality of this stock market has been that bad news is good news because that meant that the Federal Reserve would keep interest rates low. So who knows, we might actually be getting to a point where bad news is actually bad news. Well, hey, we are going to talk about all that and more on this episode of the podcast. I want to do kind of a, a really quick rundown on what's happening with the correction and the stock market. Then I want to talk about some defensive sectors that are not doing so bad. And then unfortunately, I want to talk about a really gloomy section of the economy, which is doing extremely well. It's what I'm calling the violent sector. We'll jump right into that. I do want to remind you, though, about the Mai Tai Coffee giveaway. If you're unfamiliar with that, then go ahead and listen to the previous episode. That's where I talk about it. That raffle period uh, will go through this weekend. I'll shut the contest down this Sunday night, so it's still not too late to get in into that drawing. So let's talk a little bit about where we're seeing the stock indexes and what's going on with the correction. I'm not going to harp on it too much or go into too much detail. Uh, If you really want to understand why we're in this situation, then go back and listen to previous episodes. There you can follow the real-time progression of of what's been going on. And right now, despite all the talking heads, um, you know, all their predictions and and, and pontifications, nobody has any idea where this correction is going to go. It could get worse or it could get better. We could have a relief rally where it goes up and gets back around, uh, you know, 2100 on the S&P 500, or we could fall apart and we could drop down into, I don't know, the 1800s, maybe even 1700s on the S&P 500. All the mindless speculation doesn't matter because no one knows, no one can predict the future. The Chinese stock market has been closed for the past couple of days because of a holiday, and that's given some relief to the markets because China continues to be the problem. We talked about this months ago, where it wasn't Greece. You know, the issue of whether Greece defaulted or didn't default or stayed in the euro or didn't stay in the euro, that wasn't the big driving issue. It was slowdown in China uh, being the primary factor and then the spillover to all of Asia including places like India, and then all the BRICS countries, all these, quote, emerging markets that a few years ago we were hearing, you know, they were just going to expand and take over the world, take over the globe. Brazil, Russia, India, China, to some degree South Africa was thrown into that mix. Well, those economies were all doing good because other than China, all those countries I just mentioned are pretty much commodity-based countries. And as long as China was doing really well and, and building large cities and building big battleships and all kinds of factories and, and just pumping out all kinds of consumer goods, well, those commodity countries were doing well. And not just the ones I mentioned, but also like Australia, New Zealand. But China has slowed down. And, and again, this is not new. This is not a change in fundamentals. We've been tracking this for years now. It's just that people are finally coming to the realization of it, or maybe they're just uh, capitulating and understanding that that 12 and 14% growth rate in China is not happening. And in fact, the the official 7% growth rate that they were supposed to hit this year, that's very unlikely to happen. And again, this is not new if you've been reading the blog or listening to the podcast. We know that you can't believe the numbers out of China. You've heard me say that, you know, they'd be lucky to hit 4 or 5% growth this year. 
Well, Wall Street is, is finally starting to absorb that because this global slowdown is, is finally starting to impact our country and impact our markets. I think the factor that's spooked the markets more than anything is the, the huge amount of money and resources that the Chinese government has put into propping up the Shanghai and the Shenzhen stock markets, and they just can't keep those indexes from falling. They've put in well over a trillion dollars this summer trying to defend the markets. And not only that, but, you know, they've put people in jail. They've come up with all kinds of rules and regulations about who can and who can't sell. They've stopped IPOs from coming onto the marketplace. I mean, they've done everything in their means and then then some to try and stop this stock market from falling, and they can't do it. So investors and Wall Street and, and maybe even the central banks are starting to figure out that you can only artificially prop up a system for so long. You see, we've seen this quantitative easing and huge deficit spending and government cronyism going on for 25, 30 years in Japan. And so we keep saying, well, it works in Japan. Maybe it'll work here. You know, maybe it'll work there. But eventually you run out of funny money. But like I said, it doesn't do any good to speculate or really to spend too much time on this subject because nobody knows. You know, I've been expecting China to have a big major correction or, uh, you know, a collapse in their house of cards for like the last decade. And I've been wrong. They just keep muddling along. They keep spending more money that they don't have. They keep building factories that are under capacity. They keep building cities and, and buildings and offices that are unoccupied. And I've been there. I've been to China. I've seen it with my own eyes. And yet it has still continued. It's gone on for, like I say, well over a decade longer than I thought it could. And again, look at Japan. Japan is not only in a demographic death spiral, but they're a fiscal disaster. The Japanese government debt to GDP is something like, you know, 200 times. It's immense. It's huge. But they keep muddling along. And Japan makes great products. You know, Hondas, Toyotas. So who knows how long they can keep pulling a rabbit out of their hat what we do in wealth-steading and with swing trading is we just watch the markets. We look for clues with price and volume action, and we watch things like moving averages. We can't predict the future, but we can look at the past and we can realize where we're at today. What's the actual valuation of the individual stocks and of key indexes, and where do they relate to their moving averages? And then we can try and make some assumptions. That's the best we can do. And so when we look at the S&P 500, what do we see? All year long, it had been trading in a range, pretty much hovering a little bit above or a little bit below that 2100 level. We had a major pullback. We had, uh, you know, moved into correction territory over the last two weeks. We saw some, you know, kind of sucker rallies or some attempted recoveries, but the market has hit really hard, stiff resistance below the 2000 mark. In fact, right around, I don't know, 1980 something on the S&P 500. It's hit firm resistance there since then. We've had lower lows, lower highs kind of thing. So is the market headed for more of a crash? You know, is it going to go down another 10%? Will we move into full bear market territory? Will the market go back and test those extreme lows that we saw during the flash crash in like August 24th and 25th? Well, I have no idea. It doesn't look good, but I don't, but I don't have any idea, right? It could turn around tomorrow. I'm betting on the fact that it's not. That's why I'm staying mostly in my cash positions, but we'll have to wait and see. Pull up a chart of the S&P 500. Look at the price volume action. You'll generally see that on the days that the market collapsed and fell down, the volume was extremely high. When it tried to make a recovery, although the volume was better than the 90-day average, it still was, you know, significantly less than on the, on the bad days. 
And then that attempted recovery or attempted recoveries have gotten progressively worse in terms of volume as we hit that resistance around the 1980 level. You'd normally hear me talk about, you know, where the market is in relation to the 50 and 200 day moving average. Well, we're so far below those averages, they're of no value right now. We broke those key support levels. We're in uncharted territory. And again, that's why we say we just have to wait and see. Keep your powder dry. Be disciplined. Be prepared. At some point, the market will consolidate and then start moving up. That could be a good time to get into the market. Remember, I can never tell you what to do in this podcast. I don't offer advice or recommendations. I simply talk out loud. I give you my opinion. I share my positions with you and my thoughts. I give you commentary. But you have to make your own decisions. So if we see some consolidation and the market start to moving up, that might be a time to get back into it. On the other hand, if we go back and we test those lows that we had around the 1860 level, something like that, if we go back and hit those or if we break that support, then yes, the market could go down another 5 or 10% from where it is right now. It could go down 15% from where it is right now. All we can do is look at the index and we know for a fact that we appear to be in this consolidation in this trading range over the last two weeks. And being in a tight trading range has been characteristic of this market all year. The market had been trading in a range that was 7 or 8% above where it is today. So it's likely that things won't get better and also that they won't get worse, that we'll just stay in a tight trading range and we'll be somewhere, uh, you know, range bound below 2000 and maybe above 1900 on the S&P 500. That would definitely fit within the personality of what we've seen this market do earlier in the year. Just kind of muddle along and stagnate. Although the overall S&P 500 is basically at a decent valuation, it's trading for somewhere around 16 times earnings, maybe a little less. There are still key sectors and a lot of big names, industry leaders, you know, good sectors that are trading at still very high multiples. Look at some of the big blue chips. 3M, uh, it's hardly a defensive stock. It's trading for like 19 times earnings. Home Depot has fared very well because the housing sector is holding up. But, you know, Home Depot is, is trading at probably 23, 25 times earnings. That's a pretty rich multiple when you look at the rest of the stock market and see how it's falling apart. McDonald's, we know the struggles that they've had and they don't seem like they're going to get out of their troubles anytime soon. They're trading at well over 20 times earnings. Coca-Cola hasn't been in as much of a death spiral as McDonald's, but they are struggling as an old brand that needs to re-energize things and maybe have a business model that's predicated on declining demographics. Well, they're still trading right at about 20 times earnings as well. So definitely no discount there. Visa is a stock on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's a big blue chip. It's fared extremely well, even uh, as some of the financial stocks have taken a big pullback. Visa has better overall relative strength, you know, but it's trading again, not cheap. It's probably close to 30 times earnings. So at this point, with the fundamentals maybe looking like they're not getting better, I'm holding off. Uh, there could be some bargains out there. I'm just not jumping in yet. I want to see what happens in China. I'm not worried about a recession in the U.S., not yet anyways. My concern is commodity debt defaults, and that could be individual companies like, you know, coal mining companies, natural gas companies, some of the shale oil drilling companies. It could be copper mines, things like that, but it also, it could also be sovereign debt. You know, governments like Chile, Venezuela, Nigeria, these are big export driven economies. 
and commodity prices don't look like they're going to improve anytime soon. There's no demand. All this has been built up and propped up on debt. If they can't repay that debt, that could create not only liquidity crisis, currency crisis, you know, debt defaults, but that's what could throw the, the global economy into a major recession. If that happens, then yes, the U.S. economy will go into a recession as well, even though we're holding up fairly well. But I digress. Let's try and get things back on track here. I wanted to talk to you about some defensive sectors of the economy because I've received a lot of questions about people asking about that. You know, when, whenever we move into a correction or we get a pullback, you see certain defensive sectors of the economy that do well. Generally things that are inelastic to, you know, to recession, like, you know, healthcare stocks and what we would call the, the uh, the sin stocks, tobacco, alcohol. And the reason for that is, is that these are like consumer staples. You know, if you, if you need you to get your appendix out, it doesn't matter how bad the economy is or whether you have a job, you still have to go to the hospital and have the operation. Likewise, it's sad to say, but if you're addicted to cigarettes or alcohol, it doesn't matter how bad the economy is. Most people aren't going to give up, you know, beer and cigarettes. Just a bottom line. It's human nature. And so generally we know that those, those sin stocks and that healthcare kind of industry, they do fairly well during a pullback or correction. But remember, whenever we're in a downtrend, whenever we're in a correction, the vast majority of stocks are going down. So even the good stocks will go down during a correction. Even the good stocks that are in these defensive sectors, they'll go down if the correction gets bad enough. That's why in swing trading, we're looking for, for short and long-term trends. We're looking for momentum. We know that during an uptrend, 70% or more of all stocks go up. It's mathematically impossible for the majority of stocks to go down if you're in an uptrend. If you're in an uptrend, then things need to be going up. So the bad stocks go up during an uptrend and the good stocks go down during a downtrend. That's why we move in and out of cash depending upon where we see the momentum. Because even if we're holding a good stock and we go into a downtrend, we may decide to sell that stock to go into a cash position to preserve our wealth so we can buy it back at a cheaper price. Well, we're in that correction period now. I'm not telling you to run out and sell all your stocks at this point because I think that's something you should have done maybe five months ago. So for those of you that are asking about the defensive stocks, should you be buying them now? Should you be holding them? Well, all I'll say is, is that some of the SIN stocks have held up pretty well. You've seen the biotech stocks get decimated and really they're more speculative than part of the healthcare system anyways. Overall, a general healthcare industry, I think is up about five or 6% year to date. So that has held up well. You know, again, hospitals, things like that, they're not going to go bankrupt. They're not going to be affected by a slowdown in China. Uh, I will add, though, a lot of that healthcare enthusiasm that we've seen the last 18 months, that's come as a result of the Affordable Care Act implementation. And so that's pulled a lot of things forward that just because those stocks have done very well in the last, say, year or two, they may not do as well if we go into a recovery because a lot of that easy money's already been made. And then the rise in sales or in, increase in profits for any of the pharmaceutical companies, you know, that they have now that they didn't have two or three years ago because certain people's prescriptions, drugs weren't covered by insurance. 
Well, that's already baked into the system. So as they go forward, they're not going to see that increase in sales. Sales will remain stable, but they won't increase. And remember, on Wall Street, you're always looking for growth. The premiums are paid for increase. Premiums are not paid for stability. So healthcare may not be that great going forward. We'll have to wait and see. The sin stocks, though, the alcohol and tobaccos, they've held up well overall. Uh, Constellation brands, a manufacturer of uh, spirits and wines, uh, ticker symbol on them is STZ. They're trading well above their 50-day moving average. They had a nice bounce a couple weeks ago. It'll be interesting to watch them and see how well they can hold up. If they do deteriorate and break down below their 50-day moving average, that could be a, a sign of things to come that we are moving into more of a correction. We'll have to wait and see. That stock is overvalued. I wouldn't be buying it now. Um, likewise, Altria Group, that's the uh, the Marlboro people, ticker symbol MO. They've had a pretty good pullback, but they're, they're trying to maintain the 50-day moving average. They broke that today, but they've been up and down on that uh, pretty consistently the last week or so. They are doing a good job of staying above the 200 to 100-day moving average, which, um, which have coalesced right now. So I think as long as Altria stays above the 200-day moving average, they'll be all right. Uh, again, that a company like that is in no danger of going bankrupt. They're not paying their dividend. So they'll be one of the last ones to hold out. Uh, they've pulled back quite a bit, though, because they, they were getting really uh, expensive earlier in the year. I would still, though, not be surprised to see them get back in that $54, $55 range. Again, we'll have to watch that, though. If they break down below that 200-day moving average, that might mean that the overall correction in the stock market is getting worse because people are even going to pull out of these defensive stocks. So watch those. Watch Constellation Brands. Watch Altria Group. And finally, the last thing that I wanted to talk about is a really bright, shining spot in the economy. But I talked to you about this with, with sadness. It's not joy that I tell you that one of the best performing stocks over the last couple weeks has been Smith & Wesson. That's ticker symbol SWHC. And this is what I would call the violent sector of the economy. And let me step back here. When I say that it, it, I bring this news to you with sadness, it isn't that I'm a gun hater. Those of you that know me or have been listening to the podcast for a long time, you know that although I wouldn't call myself a gun enthusiast, I have a lot of friends that are. They enjoy it much more than I do. But I love to go out to the range and shoot. I'm an old school guy. I love to shoot things like, you know, 357 Magnum revolvers. Up until a few years ago when the big ammunition crisis hit, my favorite gun to fire was a 22. A 22 really fits my personality. It's the kind of gun that's small, it's lightweight, it's available in a wide variety of formats. You can get everything from semi-automatic carbines to long barrel bolt action, hunting guns for small game to revolvers, pistol formats. I mean, it's a really diverse format. I love it. I love the fact that it, it's very economical and used to be extremely economical to shoot. You could basically shoot it for two cents a piece. There's no kick or recoil, so it's a great way to teach younger people how to shoot. So I really love the 22. However, with the problems we've had with ammunition supply, you just can't get 22 ammo anymore. That's what's moved me over to the 357 and the 38 Special. Although the formats in terms of handguns and rifles aren't as diverse as a 22, you still have that option of being able to shoot, you know, a carbine that you could use for deer hunting with 357, and, and then that same ammo can be used in a very small concealed carry snub nose pistol. I like that flexibility. And while it's definitely not as inexpensive as 22 ammo, 
by reloading, I can take a lot of cost out of it, particularly if I just want to go out and plink. I can create some really inexpensive, quiet, light loads that have virtually no recoil, which are just great for plinking. Ah, but I digress. Can you tell I love to talk about my hobbies? Let me get back on track here. Okay, so what I was saying is I'm not a gun hater. In fact, I, I've even gone out and got my concealed carry permit. But that's another story. Anyways, here's the bottom line. So the reason that I'm sad to report to you that Smith & Wesson stock is doing so well, it isn't that people are running out to be sportsmen. It isn't that hunting is in vogue. Smith & Wesson stock is doing so well because people are afraid. They're fearful of the, the violent crime that's taking place. I mean, look at what's going on in places like Chicago and New York. We're seeing violent crime rates that we hadn't seen for 30 years. The various mass shootings, the riots, the protests, the uh, retaliation against police. I mean, people are fearful on all ends of the spectrum. And the bottom line here isn't that people are only fearful of being a victim, but they're fearful of the police state. And that's people, again, on both ends of the political spectrum. It's a sad commentary on our society, and if it keeps up, it's going to have deleterious effects on the overall economy and bring down the stock market. You keep hearing the talking heads saying that we're not headed for a recession. Well, that's probably true, but we could be headed into insuppressible violent crimes, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a lot of civil disobedience and riots coming up in, in the upcoming months as we get into a new election year. People across the board are fed up. And when that happens, they resort to violence. I was born in the early 60s. I grew up with Vietnam War protests, civil rights marches, you know, a lot of political assassinations. Think of the early 60s into the 70s. I was too young to remember John Kennedy's assassination, but I surely remember Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. I remember the attempted assassinations on President Ford and President Reagan, uh, George Wallace, I think what that was, early 70s, a, a governor of uh, Alabama attempted assassination on him. I mean, those were crazy times. Uh, it was the early 70s. I think we had the Charles Manson murders, uh, John Lennon, what, he was shot 1979, 1980, something like that. Crazy times. In my elementary school in the 60s, we used to have frequent bomb threats because of the Vietnam War protesters. I can remember as a little kid, you know, they'd pull us out in the playground and we were all thrilled to death because we got to run around and play. We didn't really understand what was going on. But people would call in bomb threats. I mean, these were really troubling, unsettling times, not only with what was going on with, you know, again, civil rights and the, the Vietnam War protests and all those kind of things, but the economy was really petering out. We were at the tail end of the big boom that our country had experienced because of the end of World War II. So, you know, America was starting to falter in the 60s and in the 70s. We had a lot of recession. We had the oil embargo and the huge increase in the, in the price of gasoline and petroleum products. We had all kinds of cars and consumer products coming in from Japan and then later from the other Asian countries, you know, Taiwan, South Korea that, you know, were taking a lot of American jobs. We had major steel mills and uh, manufacturing facilities closing, textile mills down south. I mean, all that was going overseas. These were really turbulent times. Now, after the 80s, we saw a lot of these crime rates go down. The economy improved. A lot of good things were happening in our major cities. But we're sliding back into that crime wave. The murder rates are out of control. Look at hotspots across the country, from Ferguson to Baltimore to Detroit, East St. Louis. If we don't make some improvements with people's perception of how fairly or unfairly they're being treated by the government, and then again, this is both ends of the spectrum. This is from minorities that are tired of getting profiled 
to old fat white guys that are tired of having their gun rights taken away from them. There's political discontent on both ends for good reason. People have lost faith in the police state. People are not only fed up, but they've lost confidence in the system. They don't believe the police state is going to protect them. And in fact, they're more likely to think that the police state is going to come after them. And again, this is both ends of the spectrum. Violent crime and fear of the police state is not good for the economy, no matter how you look at it. So again, I'm sorry I'm off on a tangent, but I see that as a bigger threat to our economy than I do a recession. Let's get back over to Smith & Wesson. Smith & Wesson is doing extremely well while all these other stocks are pulling back during the correction. It has a 98% relative strength rating, meaning that it's performing better than 98% of the stocks out there. Now, I'm not telling you to buy it. In fact, had I owned it, I would be selling it right now. I'd be selling it on strength because this stock and RGR, you know, Storm Ruger, the other type of gun stocks, they have a very characteristic pattern. They spike up. They never stay there long. They don't consolidate at the top. They always pull back and they pull back deep. They're near perfect illustrations of how swing trading and market timing can work. So when someone says to you, well, you can't time the market, I would say go over and look at Smith & Wesson stock. And again, this isn't something that brings me pleasure to say because it's being driven by crime. But the fact of the matter is, is that the stock is very predictable. Wall Street does not like the stock. They don't like it for a number of reasons. It doesn't matter why. Because it's a non-favored stock from Wall Street, when it falls, it does fall hard. So watch the stock, watch when it goes back and tests its old lows or its support levels. And then as it starts to rise above its 50-day moving average, that's the time to buy it. You buy it at about the time the price is crossing the 50-day line. And then you be patient and you hold on to it. You may have to hold on to it for weeks or months, but at some point, There'll be some well-publicized mass shooting, some big murder, some assassination of police officers, some really horrible, unfortunate event will will occur. And if you're owning Smith & Wesson, when that occurs, almost like clockwork, that stock will peak up. It'll go on to hit all new time highs. In my opinion, that's the time you sell it. You wait for it to go back out of favor, which it always does. It'll drop down and test its previous lows. It'll hit support. When it comes back up above 50-day moving average, buy it again, wait for the next tragedy. I know that sounds cold-hearted, but it's the reality of the situation. And whether you choose or don't choose to to trade Smith & Wesson stock, it's not going to save anybody's life. If you're unfamiliar with my wealth building principles, you might want to go back and listen to, I think it's episode six and seven. You can find them out there in iTunes. Uh, The archives are always available at wealthsteading.com. In episodes six and seven, I talk about wealth building principles of profiting from trends and profiting from nature. And I discuss in there about sometimes unfortunate things occur. You know, there are tornadoes that take people's lives, but that also creates a short-term trend and potentially a buying opportunity. The fact that you profit from that isn't going to take away the suffering that, that occurred to people when the tornado hit. It's not going to help or hurt things one way or the other. But what you can do is when you take your profits because you made money identifying a trend, even if that trend is because of someone else's hardship, what it allows you to do is to be more profitable. You make money and then you get to choose to decide what you're going to do with that money. Maybe you can donate to a charity or to some other group that's going to help people that are out of favor or people that are less fortunate than you. But you not making any money, you not profiting isn't going to help anybody. 
So think about that Smith & Wesson trade. Even if it's something that you wouldn't be interested in doing yourself, at least look at that chart. Understand that pattern I'm talking about. And then apply that to other things. Apply that to tobacco or alcohol stocks as we go into recession as, as defensive measures. Apply that to healthcare stocks also as a defensive sector. Apply that same theory to things like Google and Facebook and other technology stocks as those sectors are favored. That's what swing trading is all about. It's that simple. It's not that complicated. Well, hey, I've gone long. I appreciate those of you that have endured uh, my, my digressions today. I know a lot of you just want me to get to the point. But I'll give you a little hint, and this goes along with investing and having patience and looking for opportunities. Sometimes when you're over-anxious and you're anticipating something and you're tired of all the static and the noise, well, sometimes that's the point. Sometimes those hidden gems are down deep in the dirt and you got to dig them out. So bear with me. When I'm off on some tangent or some digression, that might be the point. In any case, I do need to finish up by going down one more rabbit hole. For those of you that just want to get economic or market news or commentary, you can end this episode right here. I appreciate you being with me today. For those of you that don't mind the gun talk, then stick around. I have one more thing to close out with you. I just want to clear up one thing. Earlier in the episode today, I sort of slipped and I mentioned that I have my concealed carry permit. That wasn't something that I intended to say because I try and keep those kind of things private. Those of you that know me personally or have heard some of my past podcasts, know that I've actually said that I don't have a concealed uh, carry permit and there wasn't I was against them. I just was kind of too lazy to go get one. From a security and a defensive standpoint, I just don't like people knowing that, but I've said it and so it's out there. So yes, it is true. Over the summer, I did get my concealed carry permit. I'm bringing this up now though because I know my audience and I know that hundreds of you will email me and ask me questions about it. What am I carrying? What holster did I go with? All those kind of things. So let me just say this. I'm not going to answer any of those emails. So don't bother. Okay. Don't ask what I'm carrying, any of that kind of stuff. If you know me, if you meet me personally, I might be willing to disclose that, but I'm not going to give that information out on emails. I will say this though, and I'm going to end on this note. One of the biggest reasons that led me to getting my concealed carry permit this summer wasn't my concern for safety or the fact that I wanted to carry or any of that kind of stuff. None of those fundamentals changed. What changed was, was my perception of how hard or how easy it would be to carry. I was under the impression that, you know, wearing it inside the, the waistband holster would be really uncomfortable. And I based that pretty much just on my experience of, of carrying on the outside. You know, when I'm at the range and I, I have a uh, stiff, rigid Kydex type, uh, type holster for my gun. And I thought, well, gee, if I'm not that comfortable with the range standing up for two hours, what's it going to feel like with something in my waistband for, you know, 15 hours in a day? Well, one of the listeners to this podcast, I've talked about him before, Thomas over at Liberty Fox Defense. That's libertyfoxdefense.com. He made me one of his inside the waistband holsters, which is called a Foxy Tuck. And I wore that thing for about two weeks. And this was just inside my house, you know, just when I'm in my office or, you know, just hanging out my in my home. I wore it to see how comfortable it would be, to see what kind of pants it would work with, things like that. I really thought it would be extremely uncomfortable, but I was shocked at how comfortable it was. And I think the real key is the way that he makes his holsters. So I was happy that his was the first that I tried. The functionality of his holster is that the part that contacts your body is a really large piece of leather belt strapping that distributes the weight and all the pressure of the gun. And then he has clips on there so you can adjust the height of it so it sits exactly the way you want it 
And then that leather belt, it's not like, you know, rough kydex. He's got the kydex on the outside that holds the gun. But the part that's against you is that really thick leather. It's like, um, I don't know, eighth of an inch thick. It will contour and form around your waist or your hip or where, you know, wherever you're carrying. I found it much more comfortable than I ever thought it would, would have been. And so bottom line, that's why I decided to go ahead and get the concealed carry. Because I, I didn't see any reason to get it if I wasn't going to carry. If it was really uncomfortable, I just wouldn't have done it. Okay, I'm a creature of habit. I like nice things. I don't go out of my way to be miserable. Anyways, I knew people were going to ask about that, so I'm not going to get into the details of exactly what I carry, how I do it, that kind of stuff, but I do use the Foxy Tuck. You can see a picture of it over at libertyfoxdefense.com. Thomas is the guy that runs it. He's a listener to the podcast. He's a good friend. If you have questions, go ask him. Don't email me. I'm not going to reply back. All right. Hey, in any case, it's Labor Day. I hope you enjoy the weekend. Last year, I did a series of employment and job kind of related topics for Labor Day. And there was three or four episodes out there. So if you're interested in that, go check those out. That's again from Labor Day last year, 2014. As we said earlier in this episode, the market's in a correction. No one knows which direction it's going to take. Just be patient. Keep your powder dry. Don't panic. Use the God-given sense you were born with. Don't let someone try and scare you and rip you off while you're vulnerable. So hang in there. Come on back next week. I'll continue to give you my market commentary, and we'll talk more about wealth building skills. As always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.